I say every time we get together, and I don't say this as a perfunctory thing. I say it because I really mean it. I love seeing you here for the study of the Word of God. Whether I'm teaching, Evan's teaching, Bill Treby's teaching is not the point because I know sometimes folks think, well, yeah, you like it because you're up there. No. I think it's great that you're here to receive the only substantive revelation knowledge that is adequate for this world and for the next. Of all the things that we know, of all the things that we strive for, of all the information that we try to get a hold of, only the Word of God does in our life what we desperately need to have done. Amen? And I know if I ask for testimony this morning, many of you, hopefully every one of us, could say, this is what God's Word has done. This is what God's Word has done. I was reading this, and I'm in my regular reading pattern, and had no idea that in the afternoon something would come up that was already addressed in the Word that I read in the morning, and I did not even know I needed to be prepared. How many of us have had that experience? How many times I have been preparing for a teaching or a preaching, whatever, and something would come across my attention, a, a book or uh, scripture or whatever it was, and I would read this, and then a week or two later, preparing something that that which I'd already read is what God wants me to incorporate in this. Just amazing. So again, I want to encourage you, I want to thank you for being here regularly, consistently. And let's be good evangelists to the body of Christ and go out and share with others. We need together to be in the Word of God. Amen? I suppose I won't be satisfied until everybody who calls Lakeview Christian Center home is in this study. And it doesn't matter to me who's teaching. We want that, right? That's what we want. Well, let's this morning be turning in Colossians as we continue, and this is in Lesson 4. And this morning we're in Chapter 1, continuing in that general area of greeting. Paul has greeted the church. I'm Paul, verse 1. He addresses it to the saints, remember, and the faithful brethren who are Colossae. And then in verse 3, he starts talking about, hey, look, Man, when I hear about your fruitfulness and it's growing and all the things, you know, the, the faith, the love, the hope that is being produced in you, that causes me to, every time I hear that and I think about that, I pray for you. I pray for you. And so this morning as we continue looking at this, we're going to be looking at the prayer beginning in verse 9 and traveling through verse 14. That's Paul's prayer. But before we look at Paul's prayer, I felt the Lord wanted me to do a preparation for the purpose of Paul's prayer. Hey, that's a lot of peace. The preparation for the purpose of Paul's prayer. That's a lot of peas in there. And so this morning, we're just going to talk about one verse, verse 6, and just part of that one verse. Now, for those of you who wanted us to slow down, please say amen. Amen. Because I know sometimes some of you said we're going too fast. And so don't come back and say, hey, 
you went from lightning speed to crawling. Is there anything in the middle? So this morning, let's remember the background of where we are this morning in relation to Paul's prayer. We remember that Paul has been moved to pray with joy, with thanksgiving for the church when he hears the result of their fruitfulness. Remember when he says, when I heard about your faith, about your love, and about your hope. When I heard the evidence that you are God's people and that you are growing in health spiritually and that you are maturing, when I heard that, how did he, what did he hear? He heard about those three issues which we talked about last week. He says, when I hear this, when I heard this, I am moved to pray for you. And again, just as a caveat here, when we hear about the things of God in the church, when we hear what God is doing in the church, through the church, among the brethren, hopefully we move to pray with thanksgiving for the continuation, and not only the continuation, but the growth and the proliferation of that work of God that we are hearing about. So let's this morning, as we listen to this, also be instructed concerning our response to the good news of the effect of the gospel among us. So when someone shares about something that God is doing and someone is talking about this has happened through the ministry of the church, we hopefully will be provoked to pray with thanksgiving. Not only to pray that, God, you are doing a great work and we thank you for that, but that you will continue this work in a very much larger way, bringing it to a great fruition on the day of Jesus Christ. And so, what is it that he's heard? What was it about their fruitfulness? What was it about hearing about faith, love, and hope? What was it about this word fruitfulness and growing in verse 6 that has caused Paul so much joy? Well, again, when we look at it from our context, we're pleased about, hey, we see Al growing here, and we see God moving in Al's life. Wonderful. We see Gordon growing and moving in, in, in uh, God is moving in his life. Wonderful. We see Linda, you know, growing, and God is maturing. We love that. But there's something even deeper in Paul's heart, in Paul's understanding and vision that undergirds and motivates his praying and his joy that we need to look at this morning in order to understand, hopefully in a better way, the context of the prayer that we'll start looking at next week. Their fruitfulness was proof that God was at work. But doing what? God was at work fulfilling his eschatological design for the church. His es-what? Eschatology. The word eschatology means simply the study of end things or last things. Eschatology or the eschatological design or work, meaning that those things that are go coming about toward the end, that we are moving toward a grand finale, that all the church and all of God's work is just not a static activity, but it is the activity of God, which we learned before and we'll a little bit talk about this morning, that God is moving toward an end-day final fruitional work. Paul says, and he uses the terms fruitfulness and growth, 
And in doing so, he is connecting his understanding and his passion for prayer into the context or into the activity of God's eschatological design, purpose, and plan for the church. And remember what we said in the beginning. We want to look at the New Testament always, never as isolated books and activities and a series of 27 volumes disconnected from the Old Testament, or maybe once in a while we get an understanding, a little glimpse. But we want to see the New Testament as the integrated, comprehensive continuation of what God has been doing in the Old Testament. And so in order to better understand and better receive the great glory and grace and the depth and the amazement of what God is doing, as we read the Old New Testament, we need to have a better understanding of the Old Testament so we can see the entire work of God as one work. So you remember in what Paul is doing, he, along with the other apostles, because he was not the only one doing this, this is how they fought as a group of men who were leading the church. And this is how we should think as believers today. Along with the other apostles, Paul understood the church to be the latter day, the last days, the end of time days, the days before the return of the Lord. You remember that word, latter day. That the church was to be the latter day fulfillment of God's cosmic purpose as recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. Now you may say, well, there it goes again in Genesis. I do it and I don't do it apologetically, and I'm always going to do it. Why? Because everything that these apostles teach and preach, everything that Jesus did and accomplished, everything comes out of and is the consequence and is the moving forward of that which God began in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, and 3, but especially 1 and 2. So let's make sure we see our Bible this way, that the umbrella over which covers the entire Bible is Genesis, and the fruition in Revelation 21 and 22 is the fruition of what God began and purposed in Genesis. Can we see our Bible as a comprehensive work of God? And so these apostles carried that burden they carry that understanding. So when they taught, when they preached, when they wrote, when they did whatever they did, they were carrying in them the work of God initiated in Genesis, flowing through the entire Old Testament. And all of their references and all of their scriptures and all of their encouragement were coming out of the scriptures, which in those days, all they had was the Old Testament. And so they are quoting Old Testament scriptures. They are referencing Old Testament activities when they are teaching in these, Bible, uh, in these uh, epistles. We need to see that because this is what they were doing. And so in verse 6, when Paul uses a phrase, do you see in verse 6, Colossians 1, 6, make sure you're turning there. You see where he says, in the whole world, it... Remember the gospel, it. He has just talked about the gospel. In the whole world, underline that word, whole world, it is bearing what? Fruit and growing. Underline fruit and growing. When he uses this phrase, he has God's mandates to Adam in mind. Remember God's mandate in Genesis 1.28. There are four of them, and what does God say? Be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. And so when Paul is saying, hey, look, man, I am excited about you're bearing fruit in all the world and you're growing. That terminology, it comes right out of God's purpose for man in order to fulfill God's purpose of being in the image of God that God has given to man as a mandate. And Paul is beginning to say, when I hear about what's happening in you, I have in my mind that which God gave to Adam. Adam forfeited because of his sin, but God is now has restored it in Christ and is now producing in the church that for which Adam was created. So we want to make sure we see what the Bible is saying to us. In using these mandate phrases, Paul acknowledges that the church has become God's newly created people. New creation. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, what? Old things are what? Pass away, been done away, and all things have become what? New. Paul sees the church as the accomplishment of God's purpose as begun in Genesis 1 and 2. And the church is now fulfilling God's eternal purpose as it was given first to Adam. In order to better understand Paul's burden in this letter, let's go back and look a little bit at Genesis 1 and 2. Now, for those of you who, when we go through this, may not get it all, we spent 22 weeks, was it, in Genesis was it 22 weeks in the first three chapters of Genesis? Somewhere around there. We spent a long time in the first three, uh, two, three chapters of Genesis. So if you're not up to date, just listen to the uh, CDs for those 22 weeks, and you'll kind of catch up with us. Uh, and, and hopefully you'll get those. And hopefully that will be an education to you. It helped to educate me as I did the research and studied, and my, my, you know, my mind and understanding was expanded by the Word of God and by the references and the teachings of other people that the Lord gave to me to be able to share with you. By the way, let me just say this. None of us who teach are giving you something that is indigenous to us. I mean, is that clear? One of the things that Bill did regularly, he quoted other people. And so what we do, we read our Bibles. We hopefully and we do receive revelation from God, understanding as we pray. God is going to show us this means that related to that. Also, another vast area of understanding and revelation and instruction for me and Bill and Keith and Evan and any of us is to be instructed by others who have done these studies and have done the work in the Greek and the Hebrew and have done the research. And as we read that, you see, we are instructed. So as we receive, we give to you. And so in, in order to better understand, let's recall Genesis 1 and 2. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. That's in the beginning of the Bible. It's the first book of the Bible. Frank was looking at Annette saying, where's Genesis? I don't remember. But okay, whatever. Genesis 1 and 2. In order to understand Paul's burden, and I will say this, in order to understand Colossians in the way that Paul meant us to understand Colossians, we must understand it from the frame, from the context of Genesis 1 and 2. Otherwise, you're going to miss a lot of what Paul is wanting the church to have and what he's 
protecting them from because we haven't understood Genesis 1 and 2 clearly enough. In Genesis 1.26, remember, God has created man, God is going to create man in his own image. And so he says what? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Remember what he said there. When the Lord says that, for the first time in Genesis, all of a sudden we see and hear the voice of God himself. Everything else for the first 25 verses has been in the third person singular. You know, he, 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 he. And all of a sudden we have a we speaking. Let us and our. All of a sudden somebody is speaking and he's using us and our. And this creator God says, now I've done everything necessary, preparing everything the stage is now fully and set for my greatest creation. For the greatest creation, that is man. Why? Because in this creation, through this creation, and with this creation, God has so condescended and has so grace poured out on us that we should become the actual living vessels reality of who God is and how he is that is the most astounding reason for our existence anything you want to know about your life in Christ any decision any direction anything at all it must fall within the context of being in God's image. If what we're deciding has nothing to do or is not promoting God's image, it ain't according to God's purpose. So that is a general purpose statement, not only for the Bible, but that rules and governs my life and your life in Christ. You see, how is man to image God? Well, he was going to do it through the issue of obedience, as we see in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. They're the two trees. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Remember that. But then he's going to, in his obedience, carry out four mandates in order to properly and in God's purpose be fulfilling being the image of God. What are the mandates? The four mandates are what? Be fruitful and multiply. Secondly, what? Fill the earth. Third, what? S subdue the earth. And fourth, rule over it. These are the four mandates that God gives Adam in Genesis 1.28. And we will see, not only in this letter, but peppered through the terminology of the epistles and even in Jesus' teachings, we will see these mandates repeated and referred to time time and time again because this the church is the living out of the reality of what God started in Adam failed through his sin and is now being accomplished as a result of one man's obedience and now we are drawn into that purpose of God through being in that one man so you remember Adam failed Genesis 2, 16 and 17, don't eat of the tree. But what happened? In Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. Adam failed, what? To keep God's a man. He disobeyed. And as a result of Adam's sin, 
Sin polluted and corrupted every aspect of the world. There is not a thing in the world. There's not a thing in culture. There's not a thing in mankind. There is nothing in all creation that has not been specifically and directly touched and polluted by sin. There's nothing in this created order in the natural sense, not talking about the spiritual work of God in us, that is clear of the corruption of sin. Everything collapsed. When Adam took that bite, everything collapsed. And it remains collapsed until God restores it. And so this allowed Satan to become the temporary ruler of this world. You remember 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, they, they, that they may not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember that? The God of this world. Satan is regularly termed the ruler of this world. There are several other references which we won't go into. So sin came in, it destroyed the fabric of God's creation, and it allowed Satan to become the ruler of this world. But you see, God was already and immediately moved to recover his intention. What? That his people would uniquely and clearly image his glory on the earth through these mandates. By fulfilling these mandates, God's image would fill the earth so that the earth would become the place of the, dis dis of the display of the glory and majesty of our God. So that the earth would become the display of that. That this earth would become God's living temple, if you would, where he and man would dwell forever in eternal fellowship and relationship. So God is moving toward that. And he's moving toward that through the accomplishment of these four mandates. So how would this come about? Remember in Genesis 3.15, what has God said? Well, first of all, where is the first clear revelation of God's absolute mercy. Genesis 3 what? 7. Say, why 3-7? Because what does he say in 2-17? The day you eat of it, that day you're dead. Didn't he say that? You surely will die. Didn't he say, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Right, guys? You will surely die. So what happens? He eats in verse 6. And in verse 7, if God is good to his word, in verse 7, we got two people lying on the ground dead. But they're not dead. They're very much alive. They're hiding behind the cabbage. See, that's why we shouldn't eat some of these green things. No, no. So <laughs> that's a... Uh, a I think that's a distortion of theology of food. <laughs> They're not dead, Mary. They're very much alive, Ruth. We need to see, wait a minute. Why didn't God kill them? Well, they are dead in one way, but they're not dead in another way. Because, you see, God began to move. And remember the curse that he came forth with and in 315 what does he say there's coming a day when the seed of the woman and the seed of the enemy will experience enmity remember that i will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman 
between Satan and God's people. And you are going to what? Bruise him on the heel. And this is a Peter Davidson's translation, but sucker, he's going to stomp your head, right? Yes. He's going to get you. So God promises immediately a deliverer is coming. A man who will in every respect purely, perfectly fulfill all that Adam was intended to be but failed. This man is coming. This man is coming. There's a deliverer, and he's on his way. How would this come about? What would this deliverer do? Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49. Thus it is written, the first Adam, remember Adam and Eve, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. By the way, the man there, Anthropos, is a translation of Adam in the Hebrew. So he's using Adam in both senses. He's translating it from that. It's that play on words too. Uh, uh, dust. And as, the fir- as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, so also we also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see how Paul, when he uses this word image, has Genesis 1.26 in mind. So what? What the first man failed to do, the second man did. What are we doing? All we're doing is rehearsing how God accomplishes and gets to the place of us being this new creation community about which Paul is praying and to whom Paul is praying in Colossians. The first man failed, the second man did. Listen to Romans 5, 19. For as by the first man, I just put word first in there by one, disobedience, many were sinners, so by the second man's obedience, the many, the church, will become righteous. 519 of Romans. As a result, the second man's obedience, because of this man's obedience, remember, Adam was to walk obediently before God, and in doing so, he was given the ability to carry out the mandates. But because he did not walk obediently before God, he was unable any longer to carry out the mandates to their fruition. He could only carry them out partially. All those before Christ could only carry out the mandates partially. So that's what we see in the Old Testament. Partial, incomplete fulfillment. Why? Because of disobedience, because of sin. But when this one righteous man comes and he perfectly obeys God's word, then as a man, now he carries out and continues to carry out God's mandates fully to their complete fruition in the church. So the second man's obedience, because of that, his progeny, his kids, the church, has been given the spirit-empowered ability to fulfill the mandates that Adam and his progeny failed to complete. What is the mandate for the church? The mandate of the church 
is to be living out the reality of what the second Adam has completed, that we are in him and we are now joined into him and are walking with him, he with us by his spirit. And together, God is literally fulfilling the mandates that he gave to Adam to bring a completion to all of his work so that his people will literally and forever be in the image of the living God. So Jesus' purpose, remember in Matthew 28, all authority, authority, a man has been given authority. Authority, remember? Genesis 128, subdue and rule, dominion, remember that? Dominion, authority. Jesus says here in Matthew 28, I am the second Adam. I'm the risen second Adam. And as Adam was given all this mandate and all this authority, now it has come to me. You see, when he says that, we need again to bring back, go back rather into Genesis and bring it forward into what Jesus is saying. He's collected it and now it is deposited in him and he's moving forward to the completion of this. All authority. So is that the church will fulfill the Genesis mandates. He says, go out, and as I have personally fulfilled it as a man, as the second Adam, as I've done it in my obedience now, I give this mandate, this mantle, this commission by the Spirit to you, the church. That's our mandate. That's what God is about. That's what's happening in the church today. Now the church has become the children of this second Adam. Aren't you glad? We are the progeny of Adam, the second Adam, as Adam's progeny and children were to fill the earth with the glory of God by keeping the mandates and by obedience. And as they were to fill the earth and take over the earth and have dominion and subdue the earth and rule over the earth so that the earth would one day be completely the dwelling of God that failed because of sin. Now it's happening through the church. So now the children of the second Adam, who through keeping the same mandates, will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Remember, in Habakkuk 2.14, we are being, we are the people of God. The children of Adam, the second Adam, who are the ones who are fulfilling the mandates so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, just as Adam and his kids were supposed to do. As Adam was to exercise kingly authority, remember, take dominion. He was to exercise kingly authority and priestly duty. He was to have priestly duty. And remember, in Genesis 2.15, work and keep the garden. We talked about that. The same terminology you see in Numbers 3, 7, and 8, given to the priest, work and keep the temple. In other words, guard it and cultivate it and do the worship of the temple. That was the priestly duties. Adam was to guard the garden against the incursion of evil. He didn't do that, allowing this serpent to come in. How did the serpent get in there? Because Adam let him in there. Because Adam's authority was given to him, and he was supposed to keep that serpent out. He knew about the serpent, obviously. How would you keep out something you don't know about? But Adam failed to do that, and so it comes in there. It tempts, and the thing collapses through Adam's sin. And he was supposed to cultivate, cultivate the worship of God, the obedience of God. And so... As Adam was to exercise kingly and, uh, authority and priestly duty over the earth, so now the church has been given of kingly authority and priestly duty. Same thing. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal king, royal king. You see king in there, royal? A royal priesthood, priest, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, for God's possession. Why? Why are we, why are we kingly and priestly? Why? Well, look at the rest of the verse. In order to accomplish God's eternal purpose, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, the grip of sin, the dominion of Satan, into the kingdom of God's dear Son, into the kingdom to proclaim the excellencies who, of him who has called you out of darkness into light. This is what God is all about in our lives. You see, therefore, the church is fulfilling what the Old Testament people of God failed to do. I'm not going to go through the delineation, but you remember God met with Abraham. Remember in Genesis chapter 12. You get a recounting of this in, in, in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's sermon. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in the Ur of the Chaldees. Remember that? And God says, Abraham, get up, you and your family, and get out. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. you know, he gives them these instructions. When you look at the instructions and then compare them to what Adam was mandated to do, you see, again, the same kinds of thought, the same thought in God's heart. I will make you in 17, 6 and 7 of Genesis. God speaking to Abraham as he continues to reiterate and refine, if you would, the understanding to Abraham of the covenant. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, you see, many, many, multiply, and kings will come from you, you see, dominion. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring or your seed and you throughout their generations, you see, continuing to grow, and for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. So you remember years later, Israel is in captivity, and God calls them out of captivity. And here's what the Lord says in Exodus 2.23. He says this to Moses, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God I'm sorry, he didn't say this to Moses. This is what the commentary said. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered what? His covenant with Abraham. So why does God bring the people out? Because they are the people who will be fulfilling in the Old Testament God's purpose. Now, they're not going to get it done well. They're going to fail, you know, because of what? Sin. But they're still going to be a picture of him and his people who will finally and fully and forever succeed in keeping God's purpose. Then you remember on Mount Horeb, remember Sinai on Mount Horeb itself, God entered into a covenant with Israel. Listen to what Exodus 19, 5 says. And again, you see the terminology over and over in the Old Testament. And the reason I want to labor this point is so when we look at the New Testament and see this same terminology, our minds can go back and grab the great work of God from the beginning and bring it forward into the present. Exodus 19.5, now therefore, God speaking to the people, if you will indeed obey my voice, remember obedience, Genesis 2.16 and 17, and you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now having heard that, now you know where 1 Peter 1, you know, 1 Peter 2.9 comes from. Peter is merely bringing up what God has promised at Sinai, and what he promised at Sinai is what he promised Abraham, I mean, what he gave Adam to do. So there's a continuation of this great work of God moving forward. 
So did you recognize that Genesis 128 mandates and some of that terminology? Again, let's read our Bibles, especially the Old Testament, with those mandates and with that Genesis 1 and 2 instruction and that revelation in mind. However, as the Old Testament records, you remember the nation failed. I would encourage you to do this. Not now. Read 2 Kings 17, 7 to the end of the chapter. I think it's 41. What's the end of the chapter? Yeah, 41. I, I want to encourage you to do this. Read 2 Kings 17, 7 to 41. It is the most sobering indictment of what sin caused and produced in a nation. Over and over again, the writer will say, and this happened because, and this happened because, and this happened because, and it continues to point to the disobedience of God's people. Please let us not be, even though we're the church and we have the Holy Spirit and we have been grace saved, please do not believe that disobedience in our lives has no effect. Amen? When you disobey immediately, when God tells you that's disobedience, fall down physically or in your heart and repent of it. Father, I am wrong. I have disobeyed and fill me with the power of repentance so I will turn away from that sin. Do not ever start looking around for excuses and blaming other people, which so many do. I have had so many meetings with people that when sin is you know, revealed, then, yeah, but you don't understand. They, they, they. And that continues and accentuates and hardens their heart against God's work. Amen? Sin is as destructive today as it ever has been. It is a, the only issue that is dangerous to the church. There's nothing else that is going on in the world that is dangerous to the church other than sin. Nothing. Can you say amen? There's nothing out there in this world that can in any way affect the church detrimentally except for sin. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Sin is the issue. Sin is the issue. You see, God's people fail, but God's purpose can never be failed. As the Lord promised in Genesis 15, he's going to send a deliverer, a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, disobedience, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. This is a new covenant. After these day, the, those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law, obedience, my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the people of God's image. Ezekiel 36, 25 and, and, and following shares how that's done. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. You notice he says water and spirit. Just write down John 3, 5 when Jesus says water and spirit. That's what it's referring to, John 3, 5. What do you mean water and spirit? Well, I just quoted for you water and spirit. There it is. I will put within you a new spirit, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, you see, to be obedient, to be 
fulfilling the mandates and be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land you see the land the place the earth of God's presence that I gave to your fathers and that you shall be my people and I will be your God how will this be made possible how will it happen Isaiah 53 4 surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was a chastisement of our that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed first Corinthians 15 21 for as by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive second Corinthians 11 I'm sorry, 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 25. Remember Jesus saying, Paul's quoting Jesus at the Last Supper. He said, this is a cup of the new covenant, of the new covenant. When Jesus takes up this cup, he has in his mind the fulfillment of the eternal purpose of God as begun in Genesis 1-1. This is what this great man has in his mind. This is the cup. We have finally come to the place where God's eternal purpose will be fulfilled through me, given to the church. So what God intended in the beginning will be fulfilled forever. What will be the result? Remember, the Holy Spirit will be given and poured out. See, so when Paul addresses the Colossian church, he is, address, he is addressing God's new creational community. Remember 2.17 of 2 Corinthians. He's addressing God's recreated or new creational community that has been given the Spirit for the fulfillment of God's mandates. So as a result, the church has become the people of God whom God has recreated in His image to be His living image by the Spirit in order to fulfill the mandates through their sanctification. So with this background in mind, now we are ready to better understand Paul's prayer in light of God's eternal purpose for the church. And we'll do that next week. Thank you.